there is, I think, a lot of human insight and wisdom in Dostoevsky's novel, Brothers Karamazov. Some of my favorite lines are those of Dostoevsky's character, Father Piese, an Orthodox monk and priest. Remember unceasingly, he says, that the science of this world, which has become a great power, has especially in the last century analyzed everything divine handed down to us in the holy books. After this cruel analysis, the learned of the world have nothing left of all that was sacred of old. This fictional observation is not a bad summary of the first reflection on epistemology, on how we know what we know, and how materialism, extreme suspicion, and speculative analysis, under the guise of enlightened scientific investigation, have left humanity wandering in a soulless desert. But as also noted, people like the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur have pointed to the possibility of a quest for knowledge based on a way of weighing, assessing, and determining the merits, the faults, the qualities, or nature of things that is intellectually honest and spiritually refreshing and restorative. The sheer volume of Ricoeur's philosophical and theological work is staggering staggering in its sheer bulk. And it is a little more than difficult to understand. His writing is considered, even by professional philosophers, as extremely opaque and sinuous, making it even more difficult to understand, is the fact that Ricoeur, unlike most philosophers, was willing to change his mind if he later thought earlier conclusions of his were incorrect. So all that has to be taken into account and fitted together in understanding Ricoeur. Now, not only do I find Ricoeur himself difficult to grasp, I'm not even sure I always understand the academics who are trying to explain him. In fact, I'm not sure that their explanations of Ricoeur are always correct. So I want to be honest with myself at this point and keep in mind that my thinking, my conclusions more than anything else, represent where reflecting on Ricoeur has led me, whether it aligns precisely with Ricoeur's thought is not as important to me as the use to which it seems to legitimately lend itself. As a Christian and as an eminent philosopher, Ricoeur challenged the modern assumption that all real knowledge is verifiable and that it is easily available to us, if only we follow the right investigative methods. For Ricoeur, the Bible does indeed make claims about what is actually the case in its narratives. 
but it makes such claims, he thought, in a way more akin to poetic than scientific or descriptive speech. Close attention to the form of biblical narrative, he thought, supports the conclusion that what we have in Scripture are not so much accurate reports of events, but rather accurate testimony about them. Even where the biblical narrative may be about an actual event, the language in which it is related may be highly imaginative or figurative, but for Ricoeur, the real challenge was in explaining how such testimony conveys the deeper truth of the biblical narrative. Ricoeur, and this is what really fascinates me, Ricoeur wrote of the possibility of moving from, from what he called the first naivete, which is characteristic of pre-critical thinking, to the second naivete, which is characteristic of post-critical thinking. Actually, he saw three intellectual, or, or what I see as three spiritual stages, through which those on a spiritual quest might pass. The first stage, the pre-critical stage, is characterized by the first naivete, which can be compared to Piaget's stages of childhood cognitive development. Here, discrepancies, incongruities, hyperbole, or improbable physical or scientific events simply do not register as problematic. So the question ever arises to how in Genesis 1 there is light, or day and night, before the creation of sun and moon. Or neither is there any awareness of how fantastic it is to imagine the Hebrews fleeing Egypt, walking 16 miles, the narrowest distance across the Red Sea, through walls of water on each side, towering 1,600 feet above them. That's, that's the Red Sea's average depth. For children, no matter how bright they are, there is simply not sufficient cognitive development to question such things or to engage in an abstract critical analysis and evalu evaluation of them. Much of a child's growth in knowledge comes through the simple and innocent acceptance of what they hear from authority figures, parents and educators. Now, all this sort of, although this sort of learning from family and educators and church is frequently treated dismissively, it is really a natural and necessary part of human development. We learn as children to stop and look both ways before crossing the street. It is a common sense thing for us to learn. And we learn it from the authority figures in our lives who learned it themselves in the same way. It's just the same way we learn it's the way we learn common sense, everyday logic. 
I love Robert Fulgram's All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Share everything, play fair, don't hit people. Put things back where you found them, clean up your own mess. Don't think, take, don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. All good stuff. Everyday wisdom. Learn from family and church and school. Or how do I know a black hole warps space and bends light? It's a phenomenon uh, I personally can't observe, and I don't know how to do the math that would suggest it. I have no idea how Einstein made it from E equals made it from made it from the breakfast table to E equals MC squared. But I do have it, so I believe, on good authority that he did so. Unfortunately, what we know from human development, from human developmental research, is that many adults never progress beyond this childhood level of pre-critical thinking, just as most people never reach the higher levels of cognitive faith, moral, or spiritual development, as defined by social scientists like Piaget, Kohlberg, Mary Wilcox, James Fowler, or Gordon Allport. The pre-critical stage is characterized then by a naivete in which not just stories and explanations, but most things heard early in life are taken at face value. But what in some ways is hard to remember is that pre-critical, naive thinking is not limited to conservative Christians. A child whose parents reject any idea of God may believe just as much nonsense and think just as irrationally as a child whose parents are fundamentalists. In fact, a fundamentalist may be either liberal or conservative. In the second stage, the critical stage, logical and factual problems and inconsistencies are not only recognized but seem glaring. In fact, in this stage, they may become the most important elements in a story or in a text or uh, a passage of scripture. In the critical stage, uh, they can no longer be ignored and may even become consuming. Reading the early chapters of Genesis may feel like reading a fairy tale, and its profound theological uh, insights completely missed. How about all those dinosaur bones? How can you have light on the earth before the creation of sun or moon? Why can't the, sec why can't the second chapter of Genesis be harmonized with the first chapter? 
How about all the evolutionary development we see taking place before our very eyes? Doesn't the story of the woman being formed from the rib of the man sound like a fable rather than a real event? Like that snake and a forbidden fruit. In the second stage, in this critical stage, one may become something of a skeptic, questioning everything, doubting everything, suspicious of everything. At this stage, one's epistemology is indeed an epistemology of suspicion and doubt. When it becomes obvious that a biblical narrative does not meet the canons of modern Western histography, one may become disappointed and doubt that anything like what they are reading ever happened in any form at all. Where religious faith or the scriptures are concerned, critical thinking may become chained to the principle of radical suspicion. That is, the veracity and integrity and basic truthfulness of any text, story, or teaching may be doubted as a matter of principle from the very beginning. However, this principle of radical suspicion under the guise of objectivity founders on a number of submerged rocks along reality's shore. For one thing, to approach any question, text, event, idea, or phenomenon with a predetermined notion that it must be false is no more helpful than a radical credulity that automatically assumes it is true. Einstein said that we must allow the universe to tell itself, to tell us about itself. We must allow the universe to tell us about itself. Both radical doubt and radical credulity are psychologically an attempt to impose our own understanding and our own will upon reality rather than simply being open to reality as it is, letting things tell us about themselves. And that is diametrically opposed to the most basic requirement for spiritual progress. Our doubts may be as misinformed as our beliefs. Radical suspicion or doubt as a theological or philosophical methodology also founders on what is known as the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. What I mean is this, the organization of knowledge for any scholarly discipline, including theology and biblical studies, but, but for any scholarly discipline. When, when considered, when they are considered as academic subjects, requires a high level of abstraction. The more successful and the more established that an academic discipline becomes in its, in its development, the more its practitioners, 
the more people who study and teach that academic discipline are socialized to think in these abstractions. And the more elaborate the abstractions themselves become. Eventually, and inevitably, scholars wind up, in spite of sounding sophisticated, precise, and learned, the more they wind up not talking about much of anything at all. In the end, they wind up talking about not, a, not about God, Christ, faith, worship, spirituality, or the meaning of Scripture, but mere intellectual abstractions, phantoms. To return to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, God, faith, hope, love, spirituality, transformation, transcendence, all disappear in a puff of intellectual jargon. It may sound as if I am being critical of philosophical and academic biblical uh, criticism. And that's not entirely the case. Criticism is necessary in order to transcend criticism. Without criticism, without the ability to think and analyze critically, we remain stuck in the first naivete. Our lives are, are impoverished intellectually and spiritually. We suffer a leanness of soul. The third stage, the post-critical stage, is one which, as the word post-critical suggests, is beyond both the pre-critical and critical stages. Here, intellectual quandaries, discrepancies, and factual errors are acknowledged and understood. And yet something beautiful and transcendent continues to be seen and experienced and appreciated. So I read Genesis and recognize it is not scientifically accurate. Indeed, that it is a poem and not a scientific explanation at all. And I note that if taken literally, I can't quite fit the first two chapters together. Nevertheless, when I read and reflect on it deeply, and consider all the relevant data, something happens within me. It moves me, transports me, changes me. I see God as the source of all the beauty, order, and goodness that I can feel and see everywhere around me and in me. I experience my very breath, my life, my soul, my consciousness, whatever you want to call it, as the gift of God. For God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, and Adam became a living soul. And so I cannot help but stammer out, Ah, thank you, thank you, God, for the opportunity to live this life. This is the second naivete. From a post-critical orientation, the opening chapters of Genesis furnish 
an understanding of the reality, of the existential reality, of not only my, but of every human being's condition, the human condition. It speaks beautifully of all creation as as being good, of being very good, and of every man and every woman as the apex of God's loving and creative power, created in the image of God, bearers of the likeness of God, created for intimate companionship with God. But a humanity which in its failure to trust the goodness of God, in its insistence on self-reliance, on trusting self more than trusting God, betrays God and falls into the hands, falls under the power of dark and demonic forces. When I read Genesis, I see it as a poem of God's very real act of creation. But if I read it as a scientific treatise on the cosmology of the universe, it will crash head-on at high velocity with the scientific positivism generated by the age of enlightenment. And either my faith or my intellectual integrity or both may not survive the impact. So, in its stories and events, Scripture expresses the meaning of both the spiritual reality and passion I experience in the depths of my being, as well as explaining the uh, objective events, often imaginatively, that have given rise to them. That the events are expressed metaphorically, or poetically, or symbolically, does not mean They did not, in some sense, happen. Now, let me qualify that. In some cases, the events narrated may not have happened at all. I see Jonah as a marvelous parable, full of satire and irony, a storytelling of irresistible divine goodness, providence, and the value of of every life, but never meant to be a understood as historical fact. It doesn't even contain all the usual elements of an Old Testament prophetic book. Or Job, I see as a kind of allegorical drama or play, teaching the way of deeper spiritual wisdom through a fictional story about suffering. With this qualification, then, I can also say I understand much of what I find in Scripture as being about real, objective events described in imaginary or figurative language and symbols. So I've come full circle in the last 20 minutes. I've come back around to saying that my search is and has for a long time been for a knowledge for an epistemology that progresses naturally from the small island of pre-critical thought and journeys through the desert of criticism to a post-critical oasis. It is, I think, as T.S. Eliot said in his poem, East Coker, we shall not cease from exploration 
and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And I think that the place we come back to at the end of all our exploring is that second innocence, that post-critical naivete of which Ricoeur wrote, a place of complete and utter simplicity. Well, with that, I conclude this reflection, or at least end for now. In the next podcast, I want to reflect on Michael Polanyi's idea of tacit knowledge. <laughs>